0: Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Natalie molina Nino here with me in New York. Welcome so much to my podcast, Natalie. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here and I'm thrilled to have you in my office. Yeah, (laughs) it's wonderful. So we are uh, at the 56th Street. 57th, yeah. No, so 57th. Mm -hmm. uh, Okay, I entered from the 56th. Okay, and right in the core of, of Manhattan. Yeah, Billionaire's Row. Just as an introduction of Natalie, she is the uh, CEO of Brava Investments and the writer of Leapfrog, the new revolution for women entrepreneurs. Uh, Natalie launched her first tech startup at the age of 20, and today she is committed to delivering returns to investors while making a catalytic impact on women in the world. And she's been called a super connector and fuel core of a network tapping into the right resources to get stuff done and done quickly. So, Natalie, I've, I've read an, an article in the Washington Post that describes your company like this. The Brava aims to create a billion-dollar portfolio from scratch by bankrolling startups on one condition. The businesses must disproportionately benefit women. What is your why with Brava?
1: Hmm. I love the way you pronounce it, by the way, <laughs> correctly. <laughs> My why with Brava is to bring in a next generation of investing in women that is more thoughtful. And to focus on outcomes, which I say a lot, because I think that we have in the last 10 or 15 years in focusing on the importance of investing in women, we have focused too much on tokens, right? Mm. This idea that having Marissa Meyer be the president of Yahoo is somehow gonna fix gender parity for the whole company or for the whole industry, or having a black president is gonna solve racism in America. You know These things are not true. Mm. They are tokens, and what we know is that when it comes to real social change, when it comes to real economic change, any sort of systems change, it doesn't filter down from the top. It comes from real thoughtful systems approaches that are more grassroots, and so that's what I mean. When I say more thoughtful and when I say outcomes, instead of optics, that's what I'm referring to. It's focusing less on things that look nice on headlines Mm. in magazines um, and more on things that deliver real results.
0: And uh, I know that you are speaking at many important summits and uh, conferences all over the world. What is the message you deliver there? I
1: start off by placing myself within the context of the problem, right? I'm a Latina. Uh, I grew up with immigrant parents in the sweatshops of Los Angeles, right, and so certainly in the United States, this mythology of the American dream, right, um, is is something that is still pervasive. And so I go into spaces like that and I tell people, look, yes, immigrant family, you know, not from wealthy, uh, you know, um, environments, I was able to make it happen. And you, you let people sort of follow you through that story, but then you root it the way that I root my story in all of the things that had to go right, right? Mm. And the fact that most people don't have that luck and Mm. that privilege, and the fact that people like Warren Buffett have been investing with the long view of systems in mind. So what I'm bringing to the table is not anything new. I personally don't even think it's all that innovative. But when I go to these conferences, what I try to do is I match these two things together. I say, look at my background and look at Warren Buffett's way of investing. If we merge these two visions together, you can create Brava. Right? or mm. and you can do what I'm doing which is to think in the long term and to think at communities that are not served and you can both make money and do good things in society at the same time mm.
0: right yeah sure yeah that, that's the beauty of it that we can do everything yeah. <laughs> if we decide to do it exactly. and because everything is is like a chain it's interconnected so Absolutely.
1: and it's about raising the bar People often talk about diversity and inclusion in underrepresented communities as if it's a sacrifice that you have to make,
0: mm. as
1: if you have to choose between choosing the best candidate or choosing the diverse candidate, when in fact choosing the diverse candidate usually raises the bar, right? We, we create these false dichotomies, right? And likewise here, you either do good in the world or you make investments that make the most money. Mm. And again, it's a false dichotomy. Um, you know, the investments mm. that I'm bringing forward are investments that make a difference but they're also, we are unequivocally and unapologetically for profit. We are
0: about getting our investors mm. really good returns. Do you have a, an example that, uh, yeah. of, a, of a recent investment?
1: My uh, favorite example, and an example that I can't go into too much detail on, mm-hmm. but it is my uh, favorite example, and it probably will be for a long time, is a company that is in the business of taking the first ever birth control pill over the counter. And if you think about it, the birth control pill is not over the counter in any of the G20. So not in Europe, not in the United States. And it's not for political reasons, it's not for regulatory reasons, it's purely for business reasons. The group of ph- uh, of pharmaceuticals that own every single patent for every single birth control pill ever invented mm. decided that it wasn't a good business decision to take it over the counter. And so, yeah, this is a business that is both Going to provide a product that the customers need, and it's a great long-term cash cow business, right? People are not going to stop using the birth control pill anytime in the near future, but it's a business that is also going to revolutionize the way that women interact with their own bodies. I mean, if this company is successful, we may even see global population, you know, impacted as a result. So it's a perfect example of the sort of company that I'm looking for, right? It's hmm. it has an, an, a potential to be explosively fast growing um, and profitable, but there's no question the positive impact that it will make, and it'll be easy to measure, which is important to me. Right? People often try to convince me that this product or that product are good for women, and I say, great, show me the numbers. Right? This mm-hmm. is one of those that's very simple.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And how do you typically find these companies?
1: Yeah, we've been lucky. We launched the company in August of 2016. At the time, I was advising the White House's uh, Council on Women and Girls. Um, During the Obama administration and they were kind enough to let me launch the company at an event that they did in partnership with South by Southwest Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember they did an event in October of 2016 called South by South Lawn Um, And so it was like a mini South by Southwest in the White House And they gave me a little time and they gave me a moment to stand up and launch my company And so ever since then we've been visible Uh, people know who we are and we've been lucky We've gotten a lot of great companies come towards us. What I'm realizing though is because our thesis is so very specific um, that most likely in the future, I suspect that a lot of our investments will come from us finding them, so.
0: And are you interested in, uh, in companies that are not only in the US?
1: So at the moment, for example, this company with the uh, birth control play Mm. will be starting in the US and immediately going into Europe. So it will very quickly become an international business. Mm. And that's great. That's When we talk about explosive growth, Mm. that's what we're looking for. It's about global growth. My background is entirely in globalization. Mm. But because we're a new company, we're only a year and a half old. We're going to be two years in August Mm. um, and technically two years in October if we talk about when we launched publicly. We are focused on the US headquarters for now. And then the goal will be to move international, hopefully, within the next two to three years. This would be my first business that, um, with the exception of that very first one when I was 20, this would be my first business that is US-centric. And so you can imagine I'm looking at my clock, hoping and praying for the time when we start going global, because that's what I know
0: best. Leaders work to uh, change things, leading people and and, then taking them somewhere they want to go. Where do you feel you want to take people? Through what you do?
1: I want to take people to a place where the bar is raised and we become more discerning about where we think it's acceptable to put our money. When I look at the beautiful sculpture of the fearless girl that was opposite the big bull on Wall Street that made so many headlines, I look a little bit deeper at the product that's behind that, right? And the product that's behind that is a product from a bank. That only has, I think, less than 30% women on the board. It has Mm -hmm. less than 20% women in leadership. And yet, here they are talking about how it's important to invest in women's leadership, right? So they're not practicing what they preach. And then, if you look at the criteria that they use for which products are allowed to be in their ETF, Mm -hmm. it's not super thoughtful. It's like it has to be X number of women on the boards, which means it it could be a porn company, it could be a coal company, it could be a, mm. an arms company, provided that they have X number of women on the board, right? I think that we're at a place now where we need to graduate, and I want to bring the industry with me to graduate into this more discerning place where we look at things like that and we say, no, that's not good enough, mm. right?
0: Great. Good initiative. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am and everybody else should be happy that people like you do these kind of action-oriented, you know, uh, companies, because it's only at the end, you can have philosophies and thoughts, but if you don't act upon them, there is no result, I mean, real result. You can be a source of inspiration, but it stays there. Uh, The other day I I met with uh, uh, Seth Godin, um, and uh, he says that if you don't feel discomfort in your work as a leader, you're not really reaching your full potential. So... What about what about you? How do you stretch yourself?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I have always been a player that the quote from Keith Ferrazzi, right, that I, I get stuff done, right? Mm. I focus on that. I focus on outcome. I focus on actions. And I have found that the most efficient way for me to do that has been to stay in the background, right, mm-hmm. and to be the one that helps politicians get elected and helps CEOs be effective. And Mm. um, I was on board as uh, one of the six largest vendors in any category for Microsoft when they were moving towards becoming a global company, right? When I started working with Microsoft, well, a lot less than 50% of their revenues came from international. And by the time I stepped down from my last company, well over 60% of Microsoft's revenues were international. They were a global company. And I have found that to be most effective. So that's where I'm comfortable. And what's happened is when we launched Brava, it became very much about the story of Natalie. And it became about requesting interviews to know what I have for breakfast or what I, my favorite things are. And I, I refuse those interviews <laughs> because who cares? Mm. But it very much became about me. And I kept trying to shift the focus into the thesis and the company. And I kept looking forward to the time when we had enough portfolio companies that when the press would come to me for interviews, I could redirect them towards the founders of these companies. Mm. And sure enough, one of the first big investments we make is a company that's in stealth mode that we can't speak very much about, right? And so it keeps coming back. And then of course the book gets purchased by Random House and you can't Mm. hide behind anything if the book is something you wrote, right? So what keeps happening, I'm realizing, is that I keep getting the message from whatever, the universe, that I need to now step up and I need to be the one that's visible and it needs to be my face it needs to be my voice, and that's a stretch. Um, I think it comes easier for some. I'm comfortable speaking and having my voice heard, but it's different when it's about your image, um, and it's different when it starts to become a little bit of a cult of personality, right? People yeah. like to do that with investors, yeah. and it's clearly not a comfortable place for me. And instead of receding, I'm finding that to quote, you know, to address Seth's place. Maybe I'm meant to be uncomfortable. Maybe mm. this is because that's the next level of how mm. I lead, right? Is to lead visibly.
0: Mm. I, I guess that's the that's the good answer.
1: <laughs> and trust me, Seth is right. It's not comfortable at all.
0: But on the other hand, you know, what is the worst thing that can happen?
1: Exactly. The problems that we're trying to solve, if you think about this portfolio company, in the United States, forty eight percent of all pregnancies are unintended. Right? They're accidental. How many? Forty eight percent.
0: Oh my.
1: So, you're right. It's a perfect question. What's the worst that could happen? We have problems that are far bigger <laughs> and far more serious that we need to be focusing on addressing than me getting embarrassed because I don't like doing press interviews. <laughs> right? There are bigger fish to fry. Mm.
0: And uh, going back to, to you, even if that's what not what you wanted, yeah. but still asking, asking, <laughs> asking the question about your passion. You know, it comes from the word patire. You know what that mm-hmm. means, right? The suffer in a way. In the sense that What is it that you are so fascinated and in love with that you want to spend time and energy on that really, maybe it's tough uh, and maybe it's going to make you suffer as well, but you're willing to do it anyways?
1: If you think about my career, I am a woman who is from a community that is deeply underrepresented in tech, and I spent all of my adult career in tech, right? So I went from being the only woman in the room, the only Latina in the room most of my career, And then I took a little bit of a break, and I went to Columbia University, Mm -hmm. Barnard College. I co-founded the Center for Women Entrepreneurs, and I was surrounded by diversity. I was surrounded by women. I went to this like comfortable place. And so to answer your question about what would I be willing to do, um, even if it meant suffering, is what's worse than the lack of diversity in tech? It's finance. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what could possibly be right? Mm-hmm. So I've, in, I've, on purpose, found myself in an industry that is one of the few industries that could possibly be worse, <laughs> in finance. So I realized that this is it. You know, for me, when I looked at the source of so many of the problems that I was seeing with women in business. Um, Education is a part of it. Mentorship is a part of it. There are all these different symptoms of the problem, but the real root of all of these problems is the fact that women don't have access to capital. And so as much as being in finance might not be my favorite place to be, um, and yeah, it it has and probably will create some suffering, <laughs> um, it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make because I just think that you have to go to the root of the issue and this is it. It's women and power you know the problem of women and the lack of power fundamentally is about the lack of access to capital
0: mm. good point and uh, what kind of transformational points in your life have so far influenced you the most
1: you know i've told the story a lot and i'll i'll always tell it because it shifted that false dichotomy that i keep talking about that people present us right you can't do good and make money in my case it was you can't be effective, you can't be ambitious, you can't be successful without being cutthroat, because that's what I learned. right? And then early in my career I had the good fortune, uh, now even though it was a terrible situation, of being in a situation where we had a a massive customer who was very unhappy and was actually threatening to maybe sue my company, and I had to turn this project around. I was like the fifth person that was brought in and it was like, okay, this is it. She turns it around or like we're going to get sued by one of the biggest companies in the world. And I was unapologetic about coming in and just making sure that this thing would get solved. And after many months of working, we were in the final stages of finally delivering the product, and the only person on my team that knew how to do that called in sick. Oh gosh. Mhm. And after all that work, after sleeping in the office, I mean after just, you know, 6 months of hell, We were that close and it was all in the hands of this one guy, which actually reflects poorly on me, right? Because if that was such an important part of the process, why would I leave it in the hands of one person, right? Mm. If it's anyone's fault, it's my fault on a process front, right? But the bottom line is this one guy was the only one that knew how to deliver the files and he showed, you know, he called in sick. And so I called my chauffeur and some of my team and I said, you will go to his home and you will bring him in the office by whatever means necessary. And sure enough, they brought him in And sure enough, he taught a few other people how to do this, and the problem was solved, the files were delivered. And I was satisfied. The next morning, he called in sick again. And I was dismissive. And I was like, ah, I don't care if he's sick or not. The fact is, is now we solved the problem, right? And then I was told that the reason he was calling in sick the second day is because he was in the hospital with cardiac issues. And I realized in that moment that I had put a human being second after profits and i also realized that this is not how i was raised i was raised by parents who were kind by people who taught me to to be a different kind of human being and somehow i had lost my way and i had put you know the company over a human being which is ridiculous and so that was both the hardest one of the hardest things that's ever happened to me i did it to myself but it was also probably one of the best because it happened to me while i was deep in my career, but I was still in my 20s. And it forced me to say, wait, even if this is what I was taught, even if what this is what I saw around me, this is not how I wanna live in the world. And this is not how I wanna run businesses. And this is not how I want to to move. And it forced me to evaluate what, what were my priorities and how do I want to exist in business and in my life. Um, and it changed everything. And I would say that it probably has changed Every step of my career ever since
0: mm. it's interesting that these um you know moments and people in the right situation, mm. how they can change us, yeah, uh, and if you look at it of all kinds of events over a lifetime, mm. that's just a microscopical part of it, and yep. still it is really a turning point yeah
1: it, it's huge, right I mean it's those moments when you're forced to look at yourself
0: mm. right mm. What would you say today is some kind of a long-term formula or solution for all kinds of companies or organizations? Right.
1: I love that you asked that because that's, that's how I think. I think in terms of long-term and I think in terms of systems. Mm. Right. And here's what I would say. I would say we live in a world that is obsessed with counting heads or counting things at the top. Right. So you have lean-in. Right, and all of the headlines related to the lack of women in the C-suite. We don't have enough women CEOs, COOs, CMOs, etc. cetera. Um, or you have the counting of the number of women entrepreneurs that get venture capital. Right, The numbers are actually going down. They went from 5% to 3% in the last year in the United States. And so we're obsessed with counting things at the top and the number of CEOs and the number of founders, but we're counting, in my view, if we really wanna look at long-term solutions, the wrong side. You know, if I get, for example, two men who come to me and say, we've cured breast cancer, okay, technically I haven't funded a woman entrepreneur, so I don't get to check that box, right? But how many women have I impacted if I fund that company, right? And so I think that we're counting the wrong side. We're obsessed with the corner office, we're obsessed with the top, and what we should be counting is the impact at the bottom. If you're buying a factory and you're bringing it up to environmental code and you're stopping the practice of slave labor and child labor, are you counting who's in the C-suite or are you counting how many lives you've changed in the factory floor, right? I think that that's the formula for long-term solutions is reevaluating where we count and measure and rethinking our obsession with the top of the pyramid,
0: If we can dream a little bit and, and assume that, that right now you have all doors open to you and mm-hmm. all kinds of resources that you can imagine, yeah. what would you then innovate or, or, or change, You know, be it in, in your reality or on sure. a bigger scale?
1: Super easy, because this is top of mind to me right now. Mm. And that is, we are th- doing things like, for example, we're counting how many women venture capitalists there are. There aren't enough. That's mm-hmm. a problem. And I totally agree that it's a problem, right? But if you really look at the source of power, the venture capitalists are investing other people's money, right? The real source of power is who's behind them. And the people that are behind them are the LPs, the limited partners that come into the funds, or they are the big sources of capital like endowments, pension funds, the big, big banks, right? Those large sources of capital have today often, they don't all have, but many of them are starting to have what they call emerging manager programs, right? And if you read the descriptions of what those programs are, it's exactly what you and I would want, right? It's the opportunity to bring in new people into finance, women, people of color, people who have historically not been represented. But if you actually look at how those programs are structured, they require, for example, that the new fund manager have a minimum of 100 million on their balance sheet. Or in some cases, I've seen a minimum of $300 million on the balance sheet. So how many brand new fund managers that are women or people of color just happen to have $300 million burning in their pockets, right? So that's one of those things where I think, let's go deeper into the root of the issue. And if I had all the doors open in the world, I would sit down with all of these large sources of capital and say, you're doing it wrong. Let's fix it. Let's actually create some real pathways. For the finance system to truly change and to represent people that are not at the table right now
0: in in Europe, they are talking a lot about in general, the finance sector being you know transformed and will very soon be transformed into something else. What that else is, there is a big discussion, mm-hmm. but still somehow some kind of big change, easier. More human friendly, customer centered kind mm-hmm. of thinking, mm-hmm. simplifying things and making it easy and smooth for people yeah. that they can truly trust their bank. Yeah. Uh, or, or that. Or whatever it or is. Or whatever it, it might, bank. exactly. Uh-huh. I was just going to say, you know, some, <laughs> some, whatever it is, finance uh-huh. or something. What do you think? I mean, if we could, you know, imagine like three, five years from now and so, mm-hmm. what could be done? I mean, it might happen in Europe or somewhere else and then it kind of spreads to, to here.
1: Two things I think on that. On the banking side, I have some thoughts. But the second thing that you mentioned was it might be in Europe, it might happen here, it might happen somewhere else. Mm. I believe that the true world-changing innovations that we're going to see in the next generation Mm. are going to actually come from the global south. And I have an issue, for example, with the term globalization. We've been using that term for a long time. But really, what we mean is from the West to everywhere else. That's what we mean by globalization, right? It's kind of a one directional thing. Mm. We're not talking about something innovative that came out of Zimbabwe that's going to London, right? But I think that that's the future. Mm. And I think that um, we have built in the West organizations that are big, huge ships that require a lot of resources and a lot of time to move, right? They require Mm. research and development and all these high budgets and regulatory reasons why you have to clear all these different hurdles. Whereas somebody you know, in a country in Africa can test a new technology out, boom, next thing you know millions of people are using it. Now it's in five different countries and it's yeah. out there. And it happened in like a year or something. Mm. And so I think the speed, the agility, um, I think a lot of the xenophobic tendencies that we see rising in the West will yeah. force a lot of people to stay in their countries and not necessarily come yeah. into the US because they're not allowed or into Europe. And in the end, what that means is that means we're taking a lot of the brilliant minds that might have otherwise been here,
0: Mm. Mm. and they're
1: staying in their home country. And what are they going to do? They're going to innovate, and they're going to do amazing things that will hopefully change the world. So where it's going to happen, I have an opinion, and I do think it's going to be in the global south, which is why I'm eager to have Mm. my company go global soon. And then in terms of what's going to happen, I look at things like the global network of women that got together and marched right right after Trump was inaugurated in the United States. And I think the only thing that that massive group of women did, not that it was not significant, but that group mobilized, took to the streets, and made history. But it was about organizing, and it was about movement, and it was about being visible. But if that same group of people using similar systems did as much mobilization in the world of banking, right? And simply said, we're not going to bank with the banks. We're going to bank with ourselves. We're going to use the blockchain yeah. so that we just work around the banks and work directly with mm. the people that we can see and talk to and hear and whose hands we can shake. You know, as soon as those systems start to be mature enough that that same network that already exists, in my case, the thing that you know concerns me with women. As soon as those same networks start to be used for more than just marching on the streets but actually banking Mm -hmm. and transacting and building houses and sending our kids to college and all of these basic basic things i think that we're going to see a huge revolution in the finance space and it's going to look like what we're seeing in other categories it's going to be women driven and it's going to be accountable so that if you're bank of america and you're funding things that you're ashamed to be banking with then that's going to have consequences
0: Mm. I'm truly looking forward to this.
1: Wouldn't it be amazing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. We just decide and do it.
1: Yeah, let's just do it. One of the companies that I'm looking at in fact uh-huh. is a bank. It's started by two women, and if they're successful, they will be the first bank charter that's given in New York City in over a decade. And it's a bank that's focused on servicing small businesses. Um, and it's exciting. It's not the future that I just described, but it's like it's a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah
0: and if you could give one piece of advice to leaders and then you know you can define what those are mm. what would it be
1: you know i worked with someone with an expertise similar to yours when we were looking at the branding of the company mm-hmm. and like you she and i believe that branding is more than just pretty images and nice names right we have to live our values we have to understand what those values are and one of the conversations that we had which is what i would pass on to other leaders is there was a conversation about how do we want the company to be a thought leader and I was like "Mm, yeah sure we have interesting new ideas that are innovative and they're different from other people's but simply being a thought leader isn't enough and what we ended up calling it was principled leadership which I think is important and we defined it as principled leadership means making the difficult decisions that not everyone will agree with you on and taking a stand when you need to take a stand. Mm. And that is not how people often define leadership. And I think that at least for me, it is the most important thing. We know we're going to make decisions that are controversial. We know when we invest in things like a birth control pill in a country that is currently trying to make it less and less available to women, that this is going to be not an easy battle. Right? Um, But we have to be courageous enough to make those decisions. So it's not enough to lead. It's not enough to be creative and to have ideas that other people don't. You've got to make the tough decisions, and you've got to take a stand. And you've got to do it with intention, not by accident.
0: Sure. But what about, I was thinking about this birth, birth pill company. What will you say? Because, I mean, there is also a medical aspect into this, you mm-hmm. know, that people can, let's say, use as an argument, mm-hmm. contra-argument. So what is the story there?
1: The good news is we don't have to do that, because the good news is that the medical community worldwide has mm. clear consensus and has for almost 15 years that the birth control pill should be over-the-counter. It's over-the-counter in India, it's over-the-counter in China, um, the only reason it's not over-the-counter in the G20 is because of intellectual property law right? and the protection of the rights of these pharmaceuticals um, that prevented it from going over-the-counter. So the American College of Family Medicine, all of these different organizations are agreed that it should have been over-the-counter a long time ago. So the good news is that we're a little late to that, and people have been saying that for a long time, and, and really, yeah, it's it's not so much a medical concern. It's it's a business concern which is great because it's one of these things where lawyers politicians activists have been trying to solve the problem and it's exciting to think that the solution might be in the hands of business
0: yeah that and that i i'm sure was also the intention with the companies once upon a time when they were created they were part of society they were part of Everything, and it was all kind of intertwined. Yeah. And and uh, and then you know, with the excuse of whatever shareholder value world, right? Mm-hmm. There was only one thing on the top of the agenda. And of course, lately, of course, things have changed to the better. Right. But there's still very many companies that don't have that kind of backbone when it's right. needed. Mm.
1: And part of it is because they look at things in the short term. You can look at the exact same investment and look at it on the three-year horizon and mm. say this is a terrible investment. And then you can look at the the exact same thing and look at it over the course of a 10 year horizon and say, this is genius. It's a wonderful investment. If you have the patient capital um, and if you have that longer view of an investment, the possibilities open, right? And so a, a company like this has the potential to be a brilliant, you know, mm-hmm. Berkshire Hathaway style investment, but you have to think of it in the long term, right? And so I think that that's part of what we have to do is we have to shift in terms of our what our horizons are, and the numbers support it, because if you look at how many venture capitalists that think in the short term are actually successful and actually returning, you know, true true returns to their investors, the percentage of them is minimal. Most venture capitalists are losing money, which is why nobody has a large allocation of their portfolio in venture capital. It's high risk, and most people aren't getting any returns. And so, you know, that's fundamentally what what needs to shift, right? Is is the time horizon.
0: Are there any companies that you admire, not because they're all perfect, perfect, but they're doing lots of things good?
1: Yeah. There's a company that I'm watching. They actually closed their Series B before I formed my company. So I didn't have an opportunity to invest in them. But they're called Honor. And what they do is they've created a marketplace for elder care professionals, which in the United States, elder care professionals typically work on contract, which means they have no benefits, no insurance, nothing like that, and which is ironic given they're caring for other human beings, right? And they typically get 12 to $13 an hour. That's typically what they get. What Honor is doing is they've created a front end where you look at these resources, you can see they're vetted, they're insured, maybe they're rated by other people. So you have a good level of trust that tells you these are trustworthy resources. And on the back end, what they're doing is they're paying them 20 bucks an hour,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they're getting them a path into getting benefits. And so when you think about that and you think about in the United States, 10,000 people turn 60 every day. This is an aging population. The need for elder care professionals has never been highest and it will continue to grow. This is a company that has massive potential for growth. And they're not going to have two, 300 employees per city. They're going to have thousands and thousands of employees. And if they grow the way they I think they should, they're going to have hundreds of thousands of people who are doing this work and they will have all gone from $12 an hour with no benefits to $20 an hour with benefits. These people, none of them is gonna become a billionaire, but that shift from $12 to 20, from no benefits to benefits is life-changing. That's the difference between being able to send your kids to college, that's the difference between being able to have a savings account for an emergency, right? That's the sort of thing that changes a society, right? And so. Companies like Honor are the ones that really excite me because they're not just taking one famous CEO and making her very rich. Mm. They're taking hundreds potentially, hundreds of thousands of people and changing it completely for not one, not two, not a hundred, but an entire ecosystem,
0: right? And talking about this 360 degree view and ecosystem, take a company like H&M or mm-hmm. IKEA or so. What would you give them as an advice from your perspective?
1: Yeah. It's a challenge, right? Because on one hand, they've trained their customers to have a certain expectation, right, Um, that's not real, right? The expectation that you could buy a shirt for $10 and that you're not going to use slave labor or child labor. So I think that what has to happen for a company like that is that either they're going to be put out of business by others, or they're gonna put themselves out of business, right? And I, as, a, as a CEO of a company, I would rather put myself out of business and be a part of reinventing the company. So it's a true reinvention. And it's like the Kodak story. Nobody wants to go the path of Kodak, right? I mean, you want to be the one who sees what's next. And I think when it comes to some of these companies, it's about spending as much energy as you spent in the beginning, starting your brand and educating your customer in reinventing yourself. And in facing the reality that what you built is not sustainable, and that what you have to reinvent yourself as requires bringing your customers with you and educating them and hopefully making it just as sexy as it was in the beginning, right? But doing it differently and, and that mm. it, I don't underestimate how massive that is, but the alternative is that you know they will go the path of Kodak and they will go the path of these companies that no longer exist. And they did it so, so quickly, right? The death of companies is coming faster than ever before these days. And I hate it when people move and do things out of fear, but I think that the opportunity that they have in front of them is to create an entire new business, right? I mean, reinvention can be growth.
0: And who do you see would take their market share? I mean, we're you just using these companies as an example, yeah. but.
1: I mean, I think the disaggregation, right, and the hyper local movements. Mm that we're seeing will eventually have the effect of rendering some of these groups unnecessary, right? I don't need to have something shipped from China and into a warehouse in Brooklyn so that I can buy it at Ikea if I have a well-designed marketplace that gives me easy access to every carpenter within five blocks of me that is making a table. And if that table can be done in a consistent way if it can be made more efficient, if I can shake the hands of the person who made it, maybe it will render. And, and the challenge is that the, that level of craftsmanship is only available at this point to people with high incomes and you know more resources. But the moment that we democratize and some of the systems that are being built right now are making that more viable is the moment that you stop needing the IKEA's of the world. And so IKEA can wait and hope that that doesn't happen or they can be the ones that build that system
0: and have a huge, huge, huge impact, really, because that's the privilege you would say that they have.
1: Yeah, imagine that if is so beautiful. Of, yeah. yeah, imagine if instead of manufacturing centrally, IKEA was the the mothership to getting people the materials and the formulas that they needed to be able to print their own furniture in their garage with a three D printer. You know, but it all comes from IKEA, mm.
0: right?
1: I mean. There's so many ways that they could reinvent themselves. None of them are easy, but I think they're
0: inevitable. Mm. What do you think is the most important thing for all companies right now to focus on? I mean, if there is one kind of common denominator for everyone.
1: I think part of what needs to be done now is to take inventory of where you stand. I think every company has a ticking time bomb somewhere in their supply chain that is just waiting for the right journalist or the right lawsuit or the right something that has the potential to be really explosive and damaging to their company. And I think the opportunity that that affords is the urgency to say, I'm not gonna wait for somebody else to find that. I'm gonna find that myself. And I'm gonna do that by shifting the culture within my company to make it so that we reward people who find the problems rather than hide the problems under the rug, right? Mm. And so it's one of these things where it's not a one-time thing. It's not like, let's do an audit of our company and see how we're doing. It's a question of shifting culture so that what you have is if you have 50,000 employees, you have 50,000 auditors, right? Whose job it is to find all these different, not just inefficiencies, but also societal issues, the harassment issues, all these different things that are so top of mind at the moment. And that reward people who find these things within our companies, and we reward them because they're making our companies better, right? And so I think that that's not something that comes from the outside. Like I said, it's not an audit. It's not a third-party consultant. It's something that you build within your company, and the only way to do that is to shift culture. Mm.
0: And that is not always easy. What is your, when you're building now your own uh, company, Mm. how will you build, build the culture? Will it be something that kind of emanates from who you and the others in the company are and what you think on a daily basis, and it's kind of just something that is you know, evolving within the team as such, or is it going to be something that is already defined as the way we should be and then mm. align?
1: I think companies need to have a true north, but I think that that's all. Like Just because you know that this way is north and this way is south doesn't mean that there aren't 20 ways to get there, right? And I think that as leaders, you have to be open to the fact that you might have had one path, but that's not where you focus. You focus on the north, you focus on the ultimate destination, and you trust the people within your team to get you there, right? And to get you there in maybe a creative, circuitous, alternative route than anything you could have possibly imagined, but to be open to that. And one thing that's been helpful to me in learning those lessons is that I spent the number of years before creating Brava at a college campus where my bosses, basically, I mean, you know, it's an academic institution, but you're serving ultimately a bunch of teenagers, you know, and they're brilliant. And we know, had the opportunity to work with the Malala organization where everybody's boss was at the time, right? A 16 year old kid from Pakistan, right? <laughs> it requires, A kind of humility right to realize that really good ideas if you actually care about that are going to come from the brain of a 19 year old kid or a 60 year old person or you know I mean there is no formula right that they come from everywhere and so I think that that ultimately is probably the key for me it's it's about setting what the true north is but being flexible about everything else
0: and, and what about the uh, different age groups in society? I mean, very much in the U.S., also in the, in, in big parts of, of Europe, if you're, let's say, 25, 50, whatever, you're kind of in that group where things happen and mm-hmm. things are moving, there is a flow, there is an energy. And then all of a sudden, I've seen many companies, when you are like above 50 or so, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, things are redesigned so that they plan for an exit of these people because yep. they're becoming too whatever, stiff or whatever mm-hmm. they, they, they think, or too expensive. Yeah. Is one of the main factors, I guess. Yeah. So, how do we make this company that, or organization that we are trying to shape for the future include all of us? Because we're all going to work until, I yeah. don't know, work, whatever that is, you know, but sure. be active as yeah. people until we are 70, 80, until we have the health. There's no reason to go retire for, for, for what, you know?
1: In fact, the data says that the longer we work, the...
0: Higher the quality
1: of life is, right? The healthier we
0: are.
1: I go back to the data, and maybe this is me being an engineer, and I always go back to the data, but, for example, in the U.S., the data is super clear. You wouldn't believe it, but the data is super clear that entrepreneurs over the age of 50 are twice as likely to be successful. Mm. And yet the obsession in the cover of every magazine, right, it's not about entrepreneurs over the age of 50. But if we were focusing on data we were focusing on the actual mathematical chances of people succeeding, we would be focusing on entrepreneurs over the age of 50. And I suspect that the same thing is true in corporations where maybe it shifts, maybe it changes, maybe the value that someone begins to provide an organization is different as they get later in their career, but there is value. And it's a matter of measuring it, and it's a matter of tapping into truly what that value is and making sure that we're tapping into it. And I think that that's not a question of Us deciding do people over a certain age have value it's a question of the organization saying you have to do the work you know the same way that we in the startup world we have to do the work of seeing that it isn't just what you think is successful let's look at the actual data and what the data says Mm -hmm. right and it might not be what you think the same way as with you know entrepreneurs and I think that if you have that and if you're armed with that data my hope would be that logical minds would prevail right and that a good strong company would say, well, of course, this is a valuable resource. Let's make sure that we're tapping it mm-hmm. to the extent that we can,
0: mm-hmm. right? No, I, I hope so, because uh, I see, at least in Europe, that you know, nobody believes that in five or whatever years that the, there will be any pension system as it looks like mm. today at all. So the whole formula needs to change. Mm. Uh, and, and thinking about that, we need to innovate also the political system. It's so old and old-fashioned and stuck yeah. in something that doesn't serve us anymore.
2: Mm-mm.
0: Is there any hope there that we will uh, <laughs> find somebody, or you know, or, or, or us? I mean, initiating another another way of of stimulating people's you know dreams about what they actually want. We as a global society,
1: right? I do have hope, and I have hope because I think that. When I look at the big movements, Mm. political movements, especially the civil rights movements, all of the different movements that have made social change happen, I think we have a lot to learn from those movements. But one of the things that I think was left out of the equation and wasn't discussed enough in a lot of these movements is asset ownership, right? So while we were busy making sure that people had the right to vote, we weren't, doing enough to make sure that those same people then became owners of things. And the reason that I say that that's important and that it affects the politics is that I look at a situation like the United States doing absolutely nothing to support Puerto Rico, right? And I think, okay, you can blame all the things that I think are true, the racism and the, oh, so many different things that are at play, but I can guarantee you that if Latinos in this country owned the banks, Owned the hospitals, owned the colleges, owned all the different sort of structural things in society, we would not have a situation like we have in Puerto Rico. Racism or no racism. You have enough people who are influential, who are a part of a community, who own key, key aspects of a society, and whether you like it or not, they will be respected because they will force that respect, you know, to to be to be doled out. And so I think that Asset ownership is an important part of any political movement. People must own the assets in order to influence the politicians and fund those politicians. And I look at movements within the US, for example, there's a group called Vote Run Lead. And in fact, I'm so passionate about this group that proceeds from my book, LeapFrog, are going to Vote Run Lead. It's an organization that existed previously within another organization called the White House Project. It's well over 10 years old. In fact, I think it's close to 20 years old. And they have put more women in elected office than any other organization. And specifically, they've put more women of color in office. And so right now, for example, there's a woman running for governor in Georgia. If she wins, she's going to be the first African-American woman to be governor of any state in the United States. There's also a woman who's a Somali refugee in Minneapolis who just won for the first time also in election, also came out of this program. And so... I agree with you that the systems aren't working for us, but I also am a pragmatist and I see that even within the broken, toxic, old-fashioned system that we have, we don't have representation. And so for me, I think the first step is that. We need to get women in those roles and in those offices. And when I look at a group like Vote Run Lead, I see that they're actually doing it and they've been doing it for over a decade. That makes me happy and that gives me hope. My hope is that once you get enough representation in those offices and in those broken systems, that they'll be smart enough to to actually fix them and change them, right? But we can't have a voice in that conversation unless we have a role and we're actually in those seats, right? So I feel like that's first, and that's where a lot of my energy is going.
0: And um, as a a final question, what do you think the world needs most at this time? Hmm. I know it's a very big question, (laughs) (laughs) but it's kind of... uh... Sometimes, depending on how you look upon things, it can be also a simple answer.
1: Yeah. I was uh, hearing a beautiful conversation between Brene Brown and all of her work with vulnerability and Krista Tippett, who has a podcast at a radio show here called On, on Being. Um, and they were having a conversation about, I think it was about proximity. They didn't use that word, but I think it was. It was about this idea that no matter how much you hate somebody, no matter how much culturally there might be, right? I'm an Israeli and I'm a Palestinian and I've just been wired that this is not somebody who is my brother or my sister. If you create proximity and if you force that proximity and not, not forced, as in like you're standing next to somebody, but if you really create circumstances by which people must see each other and be seen and have conversations the way that you and I are having, it's hard to hate someone when you have that proximity and you see their humanity. And so it's a really tough question because on one hand, the short answer to your question is, I think we need proximity. On the other hand, we live in a world where that is happening less and less. We have Skype calls, we have phone calls, we have the internet, you know, we have uh, false proximity and we have the courage of being anonymous, right? And the courage of the lack of proximity sometimes to harm people. So I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you create more proximity in a world that is actually in the business of creating less, but I think that's the key. And I think that if you're in the business of whether it be starting a business, whether it be creating that social change within your corporation, whether it's starting a political career, I think that the key is create proximity where you can. I was recently hearing from one of the organizers of Time's Up that as they create the new times up organizations, right? There's times up entertainment, there's times up advertisement advertising, excuse me, there's now times up uh, the venture capital group. They're all the little times up that are popping up. The recommendation from a seasoned, experienced organizer like Gloria Steinem is when you're building these structures and you're creating these new organizations, get in the room. Don't do phone calls. Don't do, you know, Skype calls, but like get everybody to be physically in a room when you're building something new and get them to look at each other in the face, get them to have lunch together and everything else. It's, it's super old fashioned, but if you're building something, I think that that's how you create the glue. And so maybe we do use these other tools and these other mechanisms once you have already built the foundation of something. But if you're in the business of building foundations, you've gotta have proximity.
0: Yeah, and and every time I study what's happening in a room with people, that's where the magic is, always. And that's why I also always try to... If it's possible for me to meet with the people i'm talking to Mm -hmm. like this uh, for the pod and so on rather than doing any kind of efficient zoom skype whatever yeah so even if i have to come to new york which is very pleasant
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's so rough it's so rough on a beautiful day like today (laughs) yeah
0: okay is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to bring up then feel free
1: you know i would just say that we need all hands at the table or what is the expression all hands on deck, right? We have a problem that 50 more percent of the world has been left behind and it doesn't help anybody. And so for me, it's really, really important that men be a part of this solution. And I don't like to call them allies the same way that I don't like it when they call what a man is doing when he's taking care of his children babysitting. It's like, you're not babysitting. You're taking care of your child, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? Like babysitting is what a stranger does. Nobody says that a woman is babysitting her child. And the same thing is true here. I don't call men allies because allies suggest that the fight and the problem is mine and that you're being generous in coming in and helping me solve my problem. I don't use the word allies because I think that at the end of the day, this is a problem that all of humanity faces, right? The problem of gender parity and the lack of it is something that affects men as well as women. And so I think men are, are, are ready, not all, but some men are ready to be held accountable and ready to be responsible and step in to the fight with us. And I think that we as women, especially women leaders, we have to let that happen and we have to help and guide and make sure that these people who have more power, more influence, and usually more capital are part of the solution. And I think that that's really important. And I think I see that across the board, whether it's politics or business
0: or entrepreneurship. It's it's important. And I think it's something that more people should do. Help each other, yeah. And the last question is, uh, how was it to be on the podcast, just in Uh, general?
1: First of all, I never get to sit comfortably on a sofa and just have a conversation and look at somebody in the face, so that's wonderful. I think that it was great, especially the pacing, you know? I mean, you have an air of calm that is contagious and there's something really lovely about not being rushed.
0: Thank you very much, Natalie. You are wonderful. Thanks for sharing everything. And I want to say that for those of you who want to find out more about Natalie and her work, you can head to bravainvestments.com and also follow her on social media, of course. Also, do read her book, Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs. So remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And I truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Thanks for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unpack. ¡Chao! ¡Chao!